Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Guglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Raj Dasgupta, an award-winning medical educator who has become a force in the field using various mediums and wearing multiple hats. Dr. Dasgupta is quadruple board certified in pulmonary, critical care, sleep, and internal medicine, and maintains a clinical practice while also serving as an associate professor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, where for six consecutive years, he has received the faculty teaching award. His educational work includes partnering with our parent company, Elsevier, to publish the clinical and basic science book series, Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls, and Case Reports, Beyond the Pearls. He has also taught USMLE Step 1, 2, 3, and Internal Medicine Board Review around the world for the past 20 years. Dr. Raj is a regular presence in the media, appearing on various platforms and TV shows such as Chasing the Cure, The Doctors, CNN, ABC News, and Inside Edition. On top of all that, he also hosts three podcasts, the Dr. Raj Podcast, Beyond the Pearls, and Med Prep to Go. And I'd like to thank Jim Merritt, our colleague at Elsevier, for making the introduction to Dr. Rod. So thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Shiv. This is a treat. You know, usually I'm interviewing others. I'm trying to get into the mode, trying to feel being the interviewee again. So I'm excited. Yeah, me too. I've heard so many good things about you. And even when I was in med school the first time around, I'd heard about you, but finally we're getting the chance to connect. And, you know, as regular listeners of the podcast know, we always like to ask our guests to, in their own words, describe their medical journey. Like what got you excited about medicine? And then ultimately, how'd you decide to get quadruple board certified? <laughs> well, you know, it really all comes down to my background. So you can't really see me, but when most people look at me, they're like, well, he's brown, his name's Raj, he's got to be Indian, you know what I mean? But the truth is, is that I'm two races put together. And if anyone ever looks at my picture, they'll never guess what my second race is. But it's actually my mom is amazing. She is a former RN. She is, you know, not too tall. She loves going to church. She's Filipino. So I'm half Indian and half Filipino. And because of this powerhouse of Asian in me, well, what happens is, you know, we kind of are pushed, shoved, directed into that, hey, maybe I should be a doctor and the healthcare profession is the way to go. And I love my folks, you know. So initially I thought, well, that's what you're supposed to do. But then I'll tell you one thing is that during my journey that, you know, I did some training in New York. And during that time, I don't want to date myself. It was actually during 9-11. And I was fortunate and unfortunate that I was there. But you know, it was so heartbreaking to be a medical student and not really do the things I wanted to do when, you know, tragedy hit. And that was really one of the motivations for me to really just go through my training the best I can and really looking forward to really helping people. And that was a big change there. And, you know, after I became an internal medicine doctor, because I just love internal medicine, I really decided that, hey, you know, I just kind of wanted to focus on a few things because I think that as you're in the hospital, it's very easy to say the word consult consult. And, you know, I think that I really enjoyed my critical care rotation. I really enjoyed putting lines and putting tubes in people <laughs> in a nice way, not a mean way. And it kind of got in, you know, critical care is usually peanut butter and jelly with pulmonary. So I did pulmonary critical care. And I would have been done there until I realized when we talk about good health shift, you know, it's diet, it's exercise, but 
sleep is a huge part of that. And, you know, if we both live to 90 years, we sleep a third of our lives, which is 30 years. That's kind of a lot. So it made sense to do sleep. And that's how I became kind of certified in all this because, you know, we work so hard to be internists. I just didn't want it to go away. So I, I kept my certification. So yeah, I'm super proud. Maybe not as proud as my mom and dad, <laughs> but I am quadruple board certified and I just love doing what I do. That's incredible. And that's that's evident from your your delivery style, which I'm I'm getting the pleasure to experience personally myself right now, but I've heard you on the podcast before. I can see why you get faculty teaching awards. I always like to joke that if <laughs> if some one of the privileges of having of running osmosis is I've gotten to meet many wonderful educators, medical educators over the past decade. And if I could pick an all-star team of them, we probably would have never started osmosis because medical school would have been so fun and engaging that we wouldn't have had to start, you know, building flip classroom videos and stuff like that. And, and you'd obviously be in that, in that cast of, of people. So we, we're definitely going to go into sleep and, and, and your work there, but let's first start off with your educational work because you, you've won teaching awards. You published these books with Elsevier. Tell us a bit about like what got you engaged as a, as a medical educator. Sure. You know, you know, for many people out there, you assembly step one, I'm sure there's it's, Oh my God, I still get a little chill when I hear it. That's the first huge test that you have to take, you know, since college, you know, and it was so overwhelming. You know, when, when I took it, it wasn't like pass fail like it was now. And that was a huge part of getting the residency you wanted. And I remember that I did take a review course and it was wonderful. And there was instructors that were just amazing. And I always felt like, despite how amazing they are, you know, I wanted to do things that will, if only he or she kind of made it a little more entertaining, a little more fun, gave this acronym or just kind of incorporated different parts to make it engaging and educational at the same time, it would have been above and beyond. So I really, you know, had this desire to kind of bring that to combine personality, engaging, you know, teaching all into one. So I really wanted to teach. And that's why I ended up teaching, you know, step one that led to step two and three. And I never wanted to let it go. And I really, if I just say, who do I love teaching the most? I love everyone. I do. I do. I love teaching foreign medical graduates. And I love stories. My father-in-law, God rest his soul, he was a cardiologist from Iran. My wife's Iranian. And, uh, you know, when he came to this country, meaning the United States, he had to do all his steps again, you know. And I remember he told me this story that when he had to redo his step one, he would have to listen to lectures through a tape recorder over headphones. There was no like CDs and DVDs and all these things. It just makes me tear up. So I, I really enjoy teaching, you know, four medical graduates and especially step one, two, and three. And, you know, that kind of led eventually to, hey, you know what, beyond just you know, talk, 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 which I love doing. I really wanted to have some books, you know, and, you know, Elsevier is awesome. They had so much faith in me. Jim Merritt is my boy. I love him. He has always gone to bat for me. And you know what? You know, I, I made my first book, which is Medicine Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. No one sees this, but I made this hand motion. And it was really successful. And Jim decided to say, hey, let's do it over across all the step two, you know, a series, ob Peds. And that whole series became great. So now I'm doing my basic science series. We already came up with a path book. I'm working on immuno and micro. And it's just awesome. And then the last person I'll give kudos to who you know and you interviewed is Dr. Ted O'Connell. 
he got me into podcasting. He's like, Raj, you you talk so much. Why don't you do podcasts? And so I got to do all these cool podcasts because of him. And yeah, that's how I kind of incorporate all my teaching and stuff. No, that's fantastic. And and two comments I'll make on that. Well, definitely Jim Merritt is wonderful. And mm-hmm. actually, I met him a decade ago when we were first starting Osmosis. And the fact that he, as well as a few other people at Elsevier, were still at the company a decade later when, when Elsevier decided to acquire us was a huge reason where we felt comfortable. Because if they can retain people like Jim, Elise O'Grady, you know, Madeline Hyde, there's a whole bunch of them. I was like, this is this is a good place with people who are really passionate and committed to what they're doing. And then obviously we're being able to work with faculty like yourself and Ted and a few others who are just wonderful. So you mentioned, and then the other piece is, you know, I love the focus on international medical graduates. You know, they work so hard. They're, you know, they're so committed. Many of them, you know, wind up taking minimum wage jobs while they're studying, you know, yep. working at McDonald's or something while they're trying to pass the tests. And, th- you know, many of them, you know, they have to check their ego. They were cardiothoracic surgeons yep. in Africa, and they have to start from literally step one, US only step one. So my my father immigrated to from, we all did from South Africa, from India to Namibia to South Africa to then Florida. Yeah. And due to a variety of health reasons, he wound up not taking the steps in the US, but he was such an experienced physician that frankly, this physician shortage we keep hearing about, the fact that we don't allow foreign medical graduates make it easier for them is, I think, a travesty. Though there's a counter argument about brain drain for their countries, which I fully understand. I mean, I was just in London for a couple of weeks and even the UK is having issues with brain drain because all these you know doctors or med students want to leave and go to places where they're paid more or treated better at least. And so anyways, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. <laughs> I'm curious, you mentioned when you took step one, it was not pass fail. Step one is now pass fail. Any commentary, and then more than that, you know, I'm sure you've been following the AI developments where, you know, GPD-4 passes step one even better than, you know, 80% of med students or whatever it may be. And GPD-5 will probably be like 99.9%. What are your thoughts on these tests, the importance of these tests, and how should we be adjusting medical education in the age of AI? Oh my God, so many good questions. So I think number one, you know, I think I'm, you know, getting older in age is that I'm seeing how medicine in general has changed. You know, when I was, you know, a med student and oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. I promised everyone I'll never say when I was, you know, but, you know, it was all about, you know, a little more Socratic way of teaching. I remember my critical care doctor would say, hey, Raj, so why don't you explain what the swan gans catheter does? And, you know, I don't think that the skin is not as thick as it used to be. And I think that that's a good thing and a bad thing, you know? So I figure now when I, you know, to be a good teacher, Shiv, you have to change your style with the times and and who your audience is. And I definitely changed quite a bit for the better. I think I have to credit my wife, you know? She's like, Raj, if you want to survive in this teaching business, well, you may have to put that Socratic method in your back pocket and understand that, hey, there are other ways to get your point across. And I think you know, it just, it's always good to have good advice. And my wife is actually a doctor and she's the smartest, I tell you, rheumatologist. So when it comes to like, you know, step one, I feel like, you know, it's all about, you know, people's health and depression is a huge thing. And I mean, it's a real, real, real disorder. And, but I think that I think in terms of if you really, really, really wanted to take that stress away from med students, you would make step two 
pass or fail. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you've just taken one step and now made another thing a very numerical. And it's going to be, once again, maybe I'm a little biased because I mentioned about the foreign medical graduates. It just makes it harder for them to get the residency they want because of the fact that, you know, one of the things that really separated them is how amazingly high their scores are sometimes and now they're focusing on different things which is not wrong but research good letters of recommendation i gotta tell you if you just come from a you know a foreign country it's hard to get that letter of rec and get that research in there so you know i don't think there'll ever be a right answer but those are things that jump out at me as far as ai is concerned you know some of my besties here at usc are radiologists because they're always teaching me how to read those ct chests and i'll still mess up a chest x-ray from now and then so they're always uh, putting me in my place but you know a lot of ai is affecting radiology because you know this is the classic way where if you have a program that sees a pulmonary embolism or whatever abnormality you're talking about they would just kind of read it but what are you taking away from there is the clinical behavior behind it. You know, I mean, when you talk about what patient, what's the pretest probability, why did they do this? Did they just have a procedure? So I think that there's so many limitations when you talk about AI that it does scare me sometimes that, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, it's something that will always, you know, be getting modified and being incorporated. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a role, but, you know, it, it, it really just by the name of it takes away the human factor that really is ingrained in trying to be a good teacher and trying to be a good clinician. So like with anything, my answer is we, me, you, we have to roll with the punches and adjust our personalities and adjust our teaching style because it's not going away, but I'm not ready to just put all, all cards in that deck. Yeah, no, that's a very nuanced answer. And, and I, I appreciate how flexible and open-minded you have been with your teaching style. And certainly we'll see in the next next couple of years will be very interesting to see how the, the national boards reacts to all this stuff, how the med schools react to it. And I'm sure as an educator, it's, it's a, I think it's a, the best of times and, and maybe the worst of times too, because <laughs> student, students are often asking, you know, what's the point of all this stuff when, you know, in five, 10 years, AI will be making all the diagnoses for me, potentially, potentially. But, <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> Scary, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to your your sleep research and sleep sleep interest. So we've had some guests on the Raise Line podcast who've also highlighted the importance of sleep. Most notably, we've had Ariana Huffington on, who's been a huge Ooh. proponent. Yeah. And Matt, Matt Walker, we have not had on yet, but obviously his great Why We Sleep book helped popularize it. Tell us about sleep like you know i i know a lot from personal experience of pulling all-nighters in college and in med school and obviously residents do even more yeah. of that you know what is your overall assessment of where we are with sleep medicine and do you have any recommendations for medical schools or residency programs as it pertains to how they train students and residents with with sleep issues Sure. So, you know, I would say that when we talk about the pillars of health, I kind of mentioned it already. You know, I think that getting having the right weight, having the right diet, getting that exercise, you know, sleep is a big part of that. And, you know, sleep affects every single organ in the body. And, you know, many people, unfortunately, have insomnia. Many people, unfortunately, have sleep deprivation. And I just want to bring up a teaching point is that everyone thinks insomnia and sleep deprivation are the same thing. And they're not. You know what I mean? They may have a common symptom, common signs. But remember that when you have insomnia, that means that when you have the chance to sleep, you can't. You have trouble initiating it, maintaining it. But when you are sleep deprived, it's like what you said, 
Sometimes it's purposely done. You got that all-nighter. You know what I mean? And sometimes in the olden days, I think we were changing the way we think. We used to wear sleep deprivation like this big badge of courage right here. And we would have phrases like, you know what, Shiv? You could sleep when you're dead. You know, the early bird gets the worm. You know, so we are changing that. And, you know, I look at you as, and I don't want to build your ego up too much, kind of like an entrepreneur. And you know that you just can't not sleep and be an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? It just doesn't happen that way. So, and I think right now, who am I fighting with? I'm fighting a lot with social media, not literally, you know what I mean? Not like a fist fight, but, you know, you people watch TikTok, people watch Instagram, and there are a lot of, you know, little slip sleep tips they give you over there. So sometimes the first thing I have to do is debunk it because, you know, people do listen to them. And a couple of the ones, for example, mouth taping was a huge thing for a while. <laughs> Everyone was taping their mouth. There's something called sleep rotting, where they encourage you sleeping in bed for extremely long periods of time. And, you know, I think that you know, right now, I think that it's important to realize that w when you do give information, you know, out on the web or on a, a post, that you want to make sure it's accurate. You want to make sure it's evidence-based. So I think that's a big thing. But, you know, when it comes to what is my favorite clinical thing to evaluate, to talk about, to teach, it's narcolepsy. And you're going to say, why, Dr. Raj? Now I'm going to say, I always love, you know, these David and Goliath stories. I'm always an advocate for diseases that are underdiagnosed, and misdiagnosed, and misunderstood. So I really feel narcolepsy is one of those. In the pulmonary sense, if I'm wearing my pulmonary hat, my jam is something called sarcoidosis. And I I'm so fortunate to run a sarcoid clinic here at USC. And yeah, I, it, it really is something that I'm very passionate about. Because my wife's a rheumatologist, I love seeing connective tissue diseases that have lung manifestations. And I hate saying the word love because these are sick people and I don't want to make it seem that it's nice to have it. But, you know, scleroderma, lupus, RA, dermato and polymyositis, definitely almost all room diseases will give you lung involvement. So me and my wife, you know, we, we team up. And that's not all we talk about. We are a, a very fun couple, <laughs> but we do tend to talk about that and we team up. So those are the things that interest me as a clinician. Wow, that's awesome. I, I didn't know about the Starkway background, actually. And one of the things I'm not sure if Jim's gotten across to you or you've seen, we've been focused on this past year is what we call the year of the zebra, which is, you know, a way to educate more health providers and patients about these rare conditions. We've worked with the National Organization for Rare Disorders and several other patient advocacy groups for many years. And it sounds like you you have a soft spot in your heart for patients who maybe go and get bounced around the medical system for quite quite a few years before they get their diagnosis or or there's they get the diagnosis and we still don't really understand what's happening to them because these are very complicated. Yeah. And, you know, and just on the research side and having treatment sides, you know, you know, it's not like we're treating hyperlipidemia and hypertension when you have clinical trials or pharmaceutically driven or huge trials. When you have a rare disease, it's hard to get funding for these trials. And that's why there's very few FDA approved medications for some of these disorders. So it's hard, you know what I mean? And whether I'm talking about narcolepsy or sarcoid or scleroderma, you know, getting the diagnosis is just the first part. You know what I mean? Even after the diagnosis, it's horrible. You know, so yes, I think those are, we're on the same page, Shiv. I mean, those are things that we both, you know, want to be advocates for. Absolutely. And so I'm curious, you know, again, you're an award-winning teacher and medical educator, medical students, foreign medical graduates, you know, I'd love for you to be able to comment a bit on how do you teach your patients and how do you teach 
how do you how do you yourself learn? I'm always curious how great educators and teachers learn themselves. You know, you know, one of my favorite things that I always, you know, pride myself in is, you know, the way I act on your podcast, the way I talk to my my expressions. That's me. That's not like fake Raj putting on his little media voice and his media personality. I always really try to be that. And I think that obviously you have to read the room and what disease and what state and what are we talking about. But I always try to be, you know, myself and try to talk to patients the way I want them to talk to my dad, my mom and any one that I love. And so, so far it's, it's worked really well being myself. And I really feel, yes, I probably smile more times than not in the room, even if it's something that's not happy to talk about, because I really feel that, you know, especially when you are working in a cancer center or with diseases that have really poor outcomes, there's a lot of sadness that surrounds patients to begin with. And if you could just show a little bit of happiness when it's appropriate, it really goes a long way. So being myself is always the most important. As far as learning, you know, I think right now, you know, I always tell my students in a very nice way because I, I mean, I just finished teaching step two not too long ago. And you know, people are, students are bummed, like, man, I just did step one. I'm still doing step two and I have this. You and I, Shiv, know that the party never ends when it comes to taking tests and educating. And you know, what's harder than when you're a student is being married <laughs> and you're studying for the boards, having kids, which I have three amazing kids and studying for the boards. So you got to be, you know, creative and you got to know how to combine things. So, you know, I really feel that whether I'm doing a workout on my little elliptical or or a fake workout on my elliptical, or whether I just have downtime using my phone, doing things where I'm always having access to. And not to stroke, you know, osmosis is ego. I mean, you guys are awesome. But that's what you do good. You know, I kind of like go to YouTube and get some free osmosis stuff. There's small feedings of the mind, something entertaining, you know, so I kind of like that. And I think that's where you have to be creative. So in that's how I always try to keep up to date. And Obviously, that's why I never give up the teaching because I hope practice makes perfect. And the more you teach, the more you retain. And every time I teach, someone asks a question, I'm like, wow, I really don't know that. It's okay to say I don't know. I say it all the time. And that adds to my medical knowledge. I love that. I love, again, being authentic, being, you know, one of our core values is spreading joy. There's, there's so many things that people can perseverate on that are unhappy but being a joyful person, even just being in, forget the healthcare system, but just out in the world, being that person who smiles at other people, who makes eye contact is rare. It's a rarity and being able to to provide that to somebody, it's contagious. You know, there's that there's a wonderful quote I like to share, paraphrase it, but you know, a candle can light a thousand other candles and not, and its brightness won't be diminished in the process, right? So that's what a smile is. Buddha, I think, said that supposedly. But any case, I was going to ask you, you know, we always like to get a sense of what our guests like to do outside of medicine. And I'd love to know, like, what are your hobbies? What have you learned that's totally random? Like, are you being into like medieval French, you know, war history? Like, what, what, what are you interested in? And what are you learning outside of healthcare and medicine? So anyways, you know, I'm going to probably embarrass myself now. So I would say there are, are two things that I'm very passionate about. You know, the first thing is going to be sports. And that's mainly because of my dad. And I just want to say this, you know, my dad right now, he's 80. He's got, you know, Alzheimer's. It stinks. It's the worst thing in the whole world. And let me just tell everyone that Alzheimer's is not just a disease of I forget stuff. It affects a lot of your body and motor function. But, 
you know, I love him so much. And when, you know, he was all that and he's still all that, he got me into basketball and he's the huge Lakers fan. But when I was young, I grew up in the, the age of Michael Jordan. So we weren't friends for a while. But then when, you know, uh, Kobe was Kobe and he won all these championships, we were buddy buddy back then. So my favorite athlete, I'm going to tell everyone is Michael Jordan. And just like how you busted out one of these phrases, one of these Michael Jordan phrases that I always, always, always love to mention is I'm going to say it wrong, but he likes to always brag that he missed a bunch of shots. He missed tons of shots. And because he, you know, he failed so many times in these shots, it made him who he is today. And that really is how I feel. I don't mind making mistakes. I don't mind doing things wrong because I tell that to my students. I don't care if you fail the exam. I don't wish it. But hey, take that. And that's going to make you a better person. The other thing that no one really knows too much about me is my I'm a big sci-fi geek. I mean, super dorky geek. And I grew up with the Holy Trilogy known as Star Wars. So don't quiz me on like the new Rebels this and this <laughs> comic book. But let's talk about the movies. I just, I, I'll take anyone on a one-to-one -one competition of the tr original trilogy knowledge. And yeah, and if you ever get a chance to see my old bedroom, I have like figures in the package to take them out. So that's how you can get on my good side. Talk to me about Star Wars. Talk to me about like some old Chicago Bulls or basketball, NBA. It's my favorite things to talk about. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. And and thanks for sharing that about your dad. You know, it, you know, being in our 30s, 40s, 50s, and your parents are age and you have young kids seems like a, a really challenging thing to balance with everything else going on but uh, you seem to wear it well I, I do want to ask you you know strategies for coping with burnout or moral injury uh, because again I, again you're one of these people that you meet that like clearly exudes passion for what you do right and that's probably cultivated some that's probably genetic or natural I don't get that from many clinicians I interact with day to day I think it's the minority maybe 10 percent if that and and then again that that it affects their quality of life. It affects the students they train because you know we left med school to start a medical education company because medical education sucks so bad. So how do you maintain your positivity and joyfulness or purpose? Uh, and have you been burned out or had this moral injury? And if so, what are you know what are the strategies for overcoming that? Oh, that's great. You know, I think that whoever says they've never been burnt out, maybe kind of slighted on the on the fibbing side a little bit. Everyone did, especially during COVID times, being critical care doctor. It's been really tough, you know. And, you know, I think part of it is always going to be, you know, I'm always, you know, honest. But of course, you know, when I'm wearing my work hat and I have a med student, a resident, a fellow, I want to be a role model. And it encourages me to say, hey, this is those burnout things. You know, I'm not saying hide it, but, you know, it. I don't want to make that define who I am. And it's very easy to be burnt out when you are having, you know, you're married and your kids and you have responsibilities. You have a dad who has Alzheimer's, you know, and don't cry, Shiv. It's not like a, you know, this is not a bad thing. But my middle child, his name is Aiden. Oh, man, my little my little tiger's got autism. So, you know, I love him to death. He's such a fighter and he's going to improve. But, you know, life is full of challenges. And I think that, you know, if we just let those kind of take advantage of us, which is easy to, it's easy to go down that rabbit hole. It's easy to say, put me on Zoloft, give me some Xanax every day. It's easy to cry when you're not around, you know, but what I think is my cornerstone is that I have my wife to talk to. I, you know, we relate to each other really, really well. I always, you know, kind of communicate as much as I can. 
having the right mentors is good. Sometimes it's not easy, you know, but you need to have the right mentors of your life. So for me, I love talking to other parents who have autistic kids. They really understand. For me, I love talking to other family members who have patients with some sort of dementia. They understand. So I think the answer is, you know, Shiv, for anyone listening, you have to talk. Don't keep it bottled up inside. Find the right people. But of course, you know, I mean, you can't, you know, go forward and be successful in life, putting your, whether it's baggage or sadness, you know, as the first thing they see in you. I want people to meet me as the happy Raj, even if I'm having kind of a, a rough day. If I don't keep a bottle up inside, I just need to talk more about it when I'm not at work, you know? So, and the last thing I'll tell everyone about this is, that's why it's so important to pick the career you want to get into, because not to say even if you pick the right one, you won't get burnt out. But I feel in my heart the chance of getting burnt out is much, much less. And I know I felt I picked the right career and I'm really happy where I am now. And I am surrounded by positivity, Jim Merritt, Ted O'Connell, my wife, my parents. You know, you just surround yourself with good people. Wow. Wow. I really love all those strategies. And. You know, I, I do want to take a tangent and get your, if you let me take this tangent for two minutes or a minute, I'll come back to it and connect the dots. You know, I, when I was going through med school the first time around, 2011 to 2013 at Hopkins, I was also, I was getting burned out and I was also kind of, I was like, wow, this school and, and the system can really beat out the joy of learning medicine or treating patients. And it was something we hear about all the time. And obviously it gets worse in, in, in practice or residency for sure. And then practice. And I've had friends and family who've left medical careers because of that burnout. And so one thing we did in, well, right around the time we were studying osmosis was we launched this thing called the Patient Promise, which essentially was based on research coming out of Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, that clinicians who practice what they preach, the ones who care about their sleep, they want to exercise, the ones who eat well, the ones who don't smoke and you know all these preventable, avoidable risk factors tend to be not only healthier and happier, but they tend to be more believable or credible with their patients and their patients, you know, it's like if your pulmonologist is a smoker, you're, you catch them smoking, but they're telling you not to smoke. It's, it's like kind of hypocritical, not Hippocrates, right? Like it's kind of like the tagline we were, we were sharing. And so these are obviously like individual point solutions and a lot of moral injury or burnout is systemic in nature. So I don't want to confuse, you know, the two, but I, I think the tide is turning because of two things that we've been really focusing on, on this podcast. So obviously your personal health behaviors, your sleep patterns, as mentioned, having a good community of friends, family, mentors, spending time with them, all the things you mentioned, 100% agree. I'm excited about AI for reducing the burden of clinical documentation and improving workflows, maybe even streamlining medical education so that you don't have to memorize as much as you tend to memorize and whatever. So AI, I think, could be a tool for burnout or moral injury. But the second thing we're covering a lot on this podcast, one of the main reasons I've gone back to med school at Hopkins, where a lot of this research has, has started or restarted from, is psychedelics. And anything that helps provide clinicians or anybody really that sense of purpose or connectivity, you know, that maybe they lost along the way, or maybe they never really had, because they just, like you, me, we're both brown, we get it. The parents said, go to med school, be a doctor, et cetera. Like, but do you, do you ever stop and be like, is, am I self-aware? Is this really what I want to be able to do? So long-winded way of asking you if you have any thoughts on, I know we talked about AI a bit, you can feel free to double down on that one again, or or, or psychedelics. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, I would definitely say that I would 
go the way of the AI. And, you know, you're once again, it's nice that we're thinking that AI has so many applications. And, you know, when you were first mentioning it to me, I'm thinking of it just as the clinician standpoint. You know what I mean? Like already in medicine that, you know, when someone comes in, whether it's going to be heart failure, or COPD, exacerbation, there's always kind of like a, a, a checklist of things that we do. And one of the things, you know, that I hope to ingrain in my wonderful residents, students and fellows is kind of like always ask the question, why? You know what I mean? It's so easy to say, do you check off a loop diuretic? Do you check off a nitrate? Do you check off checking a brain nitritic peptide in a chest x-ray? But you always have to say why. And I always felt like I hope that AI doesn't take away from that. But when you're talking about as a help for burnout, as a help to notice that, you know, what I mean, the documentation, which is the hardest part of being, you know, document to help yourself manage the patient better. But at the same time, billing is always a part of things. Now you got me, you know, thinking that would be great. And I hope it does go that way to the things that really bog down a lot of clinicians, which is documenting, which is writing the, the appropriate note, which is going to be billing, then I like it. And I, I'm really not a big fan of medications. And the reason why I say that, my wife, rheumatologist, she gives a lot of toxic meds out, methotrexate and imuran and Celsep and tocilizumab, you name it, TNF inhibitors. And she always says to me, you know what, Raj, she feels that you know, majority of her patients don't want to be on lifelong meds. And I feel the same thing being a pulmonologist and sleep doctor and talking about sleep aids. So Anything that, you know, takes patients away from being on medications and focuses on other ways, hey, you don't have to twist my arm, Shiv. I'm on board. I, I agree with you for sure on that. The one thing I will, I will push back upon on the, on the psychedelic research is that a lot of these things are not necessarily chronic. They're one or two time interventions that have lasting effects. So like MDMA phase three clinical trials for PTSD, you know, one or two interventions can lead to at six months or even a year lasting reduction in PTSD symptoms. So so I, I agree with you, like in general, avoid medication, but where possible, where it is kind of life-changing, if someone doesn't have 10,000 hours of therapy in them, you know, if there's a, a way to get them streamlined faster, or at least more open-minded, which I think is the root of a lot of it. Like, why do people smoke? You, you know this better than me because you've treated so many people, I'm sure, who have the manifestations of smoking for decades, so they're masking something else. It isn't necessarily, you know, smoking, they're masking, it's a coping mechanism for stress or for something else. Same with alcohol, same with opiate. A lot of these things have the biological addiction, but they also have the underlying psychological issues. And if we're able to change people's minds, make them more open-minded because they become, they join an AA program, they surround themselves with positive influences, or because they read the right book at the right time, or because they take psilocybin at the right time with the with the guide with a therapist i, I think all, all these things could be valuable as well 100 percent agree we're on board on the same page i like that <laughs> awesome well i i want to be respectful of your time so i just had two last questions for you fire away fire away <laughs> what advice do you give to this is two part what advice do you give to faculty who want to become better teachers or anybody who wants to become a better teacher and then second part what advice would you give to our audience about approaching their careers in healthcare? Oh, my God. So, you know, when it comes to faculty, remember, all of us are, are in different stages of our age, of what we want to accomplish. And, you know, I always want to be respectful because there's our faculty that I still look up to, you know, even being 48, which is my age. And I know, Shiv, you're going to say, Raj, you look great. I feel it, you know. But, <laughs> but You do look great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I love having mentors. So... 
I try to actually, you know, learn from their experience. You know what I mean? I think that everyone has something to contribute in one way or another. So I think the hardest part when you get older is, you know, having to deal with people like me and having to deal with the new uh, healthcare system and new documentations and new everything. But I always try to put myself in their shoes, you know, for younger faculty that join on, you know, I think in a nice way, I think we all play fairly well in the sandbox together, but they tend to be a little more aggressive. And I see myself in them where they want to get this teaching award and that teaching award. And sometimes maybe they may, you know, do things that I hope I could mentor them in a way and say, you know what, I screwed up on this. Don't do that. You know what I mean? But I think the best thing to do when you're in a hospital, I know you didn't ask that for any faculty, is I go out of my way to be super nice to, you know, literally everyone, whether you're the person who is nice enough to help with the parking, whether you're the person that works at Dunkin' Donuts, and yes, we have a Dunkin' Donuts across the street, whether you're the person who checks to see I'm wearing my mask in the lobby, it pays off to be nice to everyone. And you know, when I go to work and everyone gives me knuckles and we do the exploding knuckles, it just pays off. So that's my advice to everyone is that, you know, it's not just always focusing on your faculties, the other doctors, it really is everyone else that makes your work experience nice. And what is my advice for people going into medicine? You know, I think the hardest things to believe is, you know, people feel that they can, you could have everything, you know, I could have the research, I could have the money, I could have the teaching, you know, and why wouldn't you feel that way when you're younger and you feel like, hey, I have the special formula that no one else has. But the truth is that I feel like I'm Debbie Downer here. But, you know, as you get older, you know what I mean? You realize, wow, the people who gave me that advice really knew what they're talking about. And you do have to make some sacrifices to really do the things you want, which means that the hardest part to know when you're younger is what makes you happy. And making you happy, that doesn't mean is it OB-GYN or surgery or medicine? I'm sure that's part of it. But is it going to be time with your family? Is is it, and there's nothing wrong if you want to make money. Is it going to be the money factor? Is it being in the community? Is it being not writing notes and being more of a, someone who does inpatient medicine? And it's hard to know these things because everything has plus and minuses. Being in a university setting like I am now, hey, it's great and I love it, but hey, there is some downside to it. So, you know, I think that this really comes down to, you know, finding the right mentors, asking the right questions, and really believing in the advice that you get. Because I know we only want to hear the advice that we want to hear, but I could tell you out of experience that it really does make a difference of knowing what you want up front, because the older you get, it's really hard to change your future in the sense that, Sometimes changing your future means moving, buying a new house, moving to a different state, doing a different specialty. So upfront, really put a lot of thought of what you want to do in the future. Mm, I really love that. I hope our audience pays close attention to that advice. It's uh, timeless. So my last question for you, is there anything else you wish I asked you that I haven't got an opportunity to yet? Now, you know what? I just love like just doing this shift. I mean, I knew it's going to be pretty easy going. I've always loved your hairstyle. You know, <laughs> we're both bald. Yeah, we have the same. We have the same barber. Barber. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
you know, I would say for everyone out there, I really hope I get to meet anyone who's listening to this. And yes, you'll find out that I'm just smiley and nice. And if you get a chance, I mean, I'm not trying to plug anything, but check out my Dr. Raj podcast. I love it. It's, it really means a lot to me to be the, the host there. And a couple of the cool guests I got on the podcast, God bless his soul, Bob Saget was there. And people are like, Bob Saget, how did he go on your podcast? You know, it's not a secret. His sister died of the lung manifestations of scleroderma and he was so nice to just come on and raise awareness so that was a real special episode and i gotta throw this out there my boy shiv is gonna be on my podcast that we're gonna record right after this so check that out too that <laughs> uh, is amazing well dr Roger, this has been a total pleasure again i heard really good things from jim and others about you and finally having you on the podcast has been a, a real real pleasure so i hope our audience has enjoyed this as much as i have i'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us and more importantly for the work that you've done over the past several decades to take care of your patients and educate tons of clinicians who in turn have, edu have, have uh, treated thousands or tens of thousands of patients. So thank you again. Oh, you're super welcome. And with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.